Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we just pray that you would glorify yourself among us, Lord. Uh, stir us with joy as we behold you. And we pray for all your churches gathered this morning, all your churches in Menifee, all your churches in the state, all your churches in the country, all your churches in the world, Lord. We pray as they gather this morning that you would bless them, that the preaching of your word would be blessed. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at this text, and this text shows you to be good and generous and wise and loving and heroic, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold your glory in it. Lord, make much of yourself this morning in the preaching of the word. We pray that you'd fill our hearts with joy and the wonder of the gospel so that our desire for sin and our desire for self-rule would melt away. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, okay, here's where we're at. We're, um, we're going to take a break from Galatians, and we're going to take some time to just prepare our hearts during this time before Christmas for the, the birth of Christ. And um, last week I talked about how Christmas is an opportunity to give to our neighbors and to worship Christ. And so this series we're doing, it's called The Meaning of Christmas, um, Advent and Four Acts, is intended to help us to uh, get our hearts right and get our hearts prepared for this season of worship. And this morning we're looking at how Jesus is the son of Eve, Next week, how Jesus is the promised son of Abraham. And then we'll look at uh, the third week, how he's the son of David, the king to come. And then on Christmas Eve here, Sunday morning is uh, Christmas Eve at at, at 9.30, we'll look at him as the son of Mary. Um, This morning, we're looking at how Jesus is the true son of Eve. And that that the promise is in Genesis 3.15. It's the promise that at some point, there would be a seed of the woman, a child of a woman that would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And so this morning, we're going to see how Jesus came to defeat Satan, evil, and death on the cross. Sound Christmassy? Christmas is about Christmas, Christus Victor, about Christ's victory. And, and Christus Victor is just one way of looking at the cross. I don't know if you guys realize it, but there's multiple ways to look at the cross. And uh, I have a diagram about it. I have at least five ways we could look at the cross, and we're just going to do this real quick, which is um, if you draw a cross, if you guys want to do it yourself, draw a cross like this. And in these four panels, I'm going to put four different ways of looking at the cross. First one to look at would be called um, propitiation. Have you guys heard the word propitiation? I'm not going to spell it right unless I look at it. I misspelled gospel last time, so that was bad. Propitiation. Propitiation is about how um, outside of Christ, we're under God's wrath. We're under his condemnation, uh, deserving of his wrath, and that Jesus came to absorb that wrath and to give us peace with God. And so if we're going to draw a picture about that, we might want to draw like a little altar and a, uh, a sacrificial animal on it. Because in that time, in the first century and before, um, people would think about God being angry and they would offer a sacrifice that would turn away wrath. Jesus is that sacrifice. Instead of having us offer an animal or offer ourselves or a human sacrifice or something like that, Jesus himself, God himself became the sacrifice. He turns away God's wrath. That's propitiation. Another way of looking at what the cross did is justification. Justification, that's a big theme in Galatians, is justification. Justification is the idea, it's, this is temple imagery here. Justification is courtroom imagery. It's the imagery of we are guilty of crimes. Uh, the judge has, has condemned us for those crimes, and Jesus steps in to take the punishment for those crimes, and that we get de- declared righteous based on his righteousness. So we're guilty, Jesus takes the, the, the penalty himself, and then we are declared righteous. A, a way to kind of symbolize that would be a... Uh, like a gavel, like in a courtroom gavel, where we're declared, 
were declared righteous. Not just innocent, not just not guilty, but righteous in Christ. And so that's another way of looking at the cross. So you have temple imagery, you have um, courtroom imagery. Another way of looking at the cross, and these are all true. One of the weird things that happens in theological discourse is that people go like, oh, which one's right? These are all true. The gospel is a diamond, many facets, different ways to look at it. Here's five different ways to look at it, and all these things are true of the cross. Another one would be uh, redemption. Redemption has a totally different flavor. It's, um, it's that we're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to evil. And it's something that we cannot stop doing. We're, um, we're enslaved to it. And, and what Jesus did at the cross is by his blood, he purchased us out of a slave market so that we could live in freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, image for that that I like to do is like kind of like a ball and chain kind of thing. And then maybe over here, like a, like a manacle, like that. And maybe you have the chains are broken, right? So redemption. This is, so this one would be in a temple. This one would be in a courtroom. This one would be in a slave market. These are all things that first century people would have seen in their city. Isn't that amazing? And the gospel is, is pictured in all these different ways. Uh, one of the most important one, um, and the one that's the goal of everything, is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Reconciliation, this would take place in a home. This would take place in private relationships. And the idea of the gospel is reconciliation in that we were estranged from God. We were his enemies. And that by the cross, he has welcomed us into his family and adopted us as his kids. So this is the most personal one. And why I say it's the most important is, who cares if you have forgiveness or redemption or propitiation, but you don't get God? God is the greatest treasure in the universe. He is the one we really want. And the whole gospel is about getting God, about having God as your father. And so what we're going to look at this time is a fifth one. And it's, uh, it's called Christus Victor. And uh, it means Christ's victory. And this image, what it's about is that what happened in the fall was that this world got taken over by Satan. And that the world lives in dominion to Satan. And that Christ by the cross has defeated Satan and demons and evil and death. And so this one has cosmic significance. It's, it's what this promise in Genesis 3.15 is about. It's about the defeat of Satan. And so I'm going to put a snake here with his head crushed. And then we'll put a crown on the cross here. And that one's Christus Victor. That's the one we look at this morning. So Christus Victor is the idea. It reminds us, guys, that, that the gospel has not just personal consequences, but cosmic ones. What I mean by that is when, when you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that prayer is going to be answered. It's going to be answered because Jesus Christ defeated the powers of evil. This one deals with the whole world and what the whole world's going to become because of the cross. Christus Victor reminds us that the gospel isn't just a set of privately held beliefs that affect your heart. It is that. But it is also something that's good news for the physical future of this world. The entire material universe is going to benefit from the cross. And that's because of Christus Victor. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see how does Christus Victor fit into the whole story of the world. So the past and future of the world. The whole world's story can really be broken down into four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so we're going to go through those and just see how this story unfolds. First, let's start at creation. So we're going to rewind the tape back, way back, to creation. Actually, you're going to rewind the tape back further. We're going to go to before the beginning. We're going to go to God, Trinity, eternally existing in three persons. God is one God, eternally existent in three persons, for Father, Son, and Spirit, a community of persons that have enjoyed one another's presence throughout all eternity. 
Okay? Loved and enjoyed one another throughout all eternity. A real relationship within the person of God. And so we know that God did not create the world because he was lonely or had some sense of need. I know probably as kids, or maybe more recently, you thought to yourself, like, man, what was God doing before creation? Poor God. Must have been so lonely, just dark, sitting in the dark by himself. No. Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, having the most explosive relationship of joy and wonder and love that you can possibly imagine. Um, Somebody asked the USC uh, philosophy professor, Dallas Willard, they asked him, what was God doing before creation? You want to know his answer? Now listen carefully. He said this, he was enjoying themselves, (laughs) which is terrible English, but awesome theology. He was enjoying themselves. And so you might want to ask yourself, well, why did God create if he was you know, had this relationship of joy and happiness. Guys, the three persons of the Trinity created us out of an overflow of joy they had in one another. So they created us for, God created us for his glory and because he had something to share. He was not in need of us. He had love and joy and surplus to share. And so he created human beings um, in his image for his glory and to share his joy. And he made human beings to be his children, which he could enjoy. And he also made them to reign over the earth. You guys remember, and this would be a good place to start turning because we'll kind of jog through Genesis. If you go to Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. There we see the themselves, right? God created them in a very personal way, starting with Adam. If you look at Genesis 2.7, it says, the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And then it says, and then he put him in the Garden of Eden, which he had formed. You see God in a very personal act, all the rest of creation, he's speaking, a very personal act of creation. He stoops down and he gets his hands dirty and he involves himself very personally, and then he breathes his spirit into this creature he's made, and it becomes a living person that could have actual relationship with him and know him. Um, and God enjoyed the man and the woman as his own kids. And he wouldn't leave them alone. It says he would come and visit them in the cool of the day. You know, you could picture him as, as like a new parent with the first kid. And you just want to look at them, poke them, and like look at their eyes and talk to them and just see what they're going to do. God enjoyed his children that way and just enjoyed looking at them and playing with them and seeing them and staring into their eyes and talking to them. He also made them to reign over creation. He made them stewards over creation. God gave them the highest role. He said, steward my creation. You guys know what a steward is? We don't use stewards very often. If you guys have ever, like, maybe you have animals and you went away for a while and you had somebody house sit, like, that would be a steward. It'd be somebody that takes care of your house, but he'd be doing it all the time. Um, we had a young guy um, watch our house uh, several years ago, and, um, and we thought he did a pretty good job, you know, it was good. And then in church the next Sunday, he was like, hey, Eric. I'm like, what? He goes, I like that shirt. I'm like, oh, thanks. He goes, I wore that shirt. And I was like, what do you mean? He's all, I wore your clothes. And I especially like that shirt. And I was like, this is super weird. You know? And then, and then later, this is terrible. This is like a week or two later. Um, Tasha and I, we met in high school. My wife, we met in high school. And uh, he, goes, uh, he goes, hey, you and Tasha really loved each other in high school. And I was like, yeah? And he goes, uh, read your love notes. <laughs> right. So he does it and he tells me. Which is real strange. I mean, that compounds it. Like, you did it and told me? Um, and they were, like, hidden in a room, like, we never used far. This guy had to search for this thing. And they're, like, things I would never read. You know, they, you know how you folded them in a little triangle and the whole deal? Like, the whole deal. It was like the way, for you guys who are younger, we used to text this way. So we'd take paper, write on it, and we'd pass it through somebody, and that was text messaging. Um, no pictures. Um, but, 
uh, I was like, that's crazy. So that's stewarding poorly. That was the last time he stewarded our house. We had girls do it after that, and that was better. Um, but you see in Genesis 1.26 how they were made stewards. He says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then Genesis 2.15, look at that. It says, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. It's really interesting because there's two different things going on there. The work it is to tend it, to garden it. It was a garden. He was to cultivate it for God's glory. And then the keeping it is actually a word that means to defend it means to guard it. Um, it's a similar wording that was given to the Levites as they were told to guard the temple. Okay, They were told to guard it. And you might think, you know, what's going on here? But in Eden, they were meant to live in it, to cultivate it, and to enjoy it, and to defend it. It was a garden temple. And you say, guard it from what? What's the danger? We'll find out in a little bit. And then God gave the people one generous command. They could take a look at this. Genesis 2.16. This is his command. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Guys, this is a massively generous law. Okay? It isn't that God said, like, you know, you can eat just avocados the rest of your life. I love avocados, but you just, not the rest of my life. You can just eat avocados the rest of your life. I don't like them. It doesn't matter. Eat them. Right? No, he gave him every tree of the garden. He was told to, that he could have anything, including the tree of life, which would have kept them living forever. He, he said, eat of anything. He says, just don't eat of the one that will kill you. Okay, this is generous. You know, people make this out to be like, oh, you put a trap out for him. He is as generous. This is provision. This is giving them everything. And so Adam and Eve were given this opportunity to live forever in happy trust in the one who made them and gave them everything they had and the one who adored them. I mean, this is a command from a God who adores these people. And they had this opportunity. And all the Lord said to him is, trust me on this. That one will kill you. Okay? So that's act one. That's creation. Next one, the fall. Look at Genesis 1, 3, uh, 3, 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. At first, this seems like just a snake, and you could read it that way, and if you didn't have the rest of the Bible, you might think that. But this snake does something that snakes don't do. What is it? Talking, yes. And, and the things that he says also give hints to who he is. This is no ordinary snake. As we see as the story comes along, this is Satan appearing as a snake. In Revelation 12, uh, 9, it, it calls him the great dragon, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. And so that's who we're dealing with that's linking into the garden here. And I know some of you guys might be thinking, and I think it's a very reasonable thing in this time, you might think, come on, Eric. You're a, you're a 21st century educated man. You, you don't believe in a literal devil, do you? I mean, you could think that. I'm sure there's somebody in here that's thinking like, ah, come on, that just sounds so fake. You don't really believe in a literal devil, do you? And I would say to you, don't you? Do you read the news? You know, do you, do you read history? <laughs> I mean, you think about some of the most extreme evil that we see in our time now and that we've seen through history, and you think that that's just human beings? You think that human beings could, be, could, could do that for rational reasons? And a lot of times we say, oh, no, no, that guy, he was insane. Or, you know, oh, it was, he was raised wrong or whatever. There are whole nations that went evil in extreme ways. And it makes total sense to me that there is a spiritual force of evil who is a person, personal being, that's behind these things. And it's Satan. Well, who is Satan? We know from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that Satan was a fallen angel. He was created good. He was created with great power and great beauty. But he wanted something more, right? 
He wanted to be like God. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in the preface to um, Paradise Lost, he wrote this, In the midst of a world of light and love and of song and feasting and dancing, Lucifer could find nothing to think about more interesting than his own prestige. Right? And so sometime between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, Satan leads a rebellion. We know from Revelation 12, took about a third of the angelic creatures with him, come down to earth, and we see him slinking into the garden in Genesis 3 here. And we see that he wants to grow his rebellion. He especially wants to grow his rebellion amongst the humans. And there's a reason for this. It's because the humans are, have been given uh, reign over creation. They've been left to defend it. They're the gatekeepers. And so if Satan can win over Adam and Eve, he can actually gain, in some sense, control here in the world. And so Satan starts with Eve, and he tempts them to rebel against God's one good, generous command. Take a look at uh, Genesis 3.1. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Oh, we may eat of the trees of the garden. But the Lord said you shall not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. She added a little bit to his command there. He didn't actually say don't touch it. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Do you guys see Satan's playbook here? It's really interesting. He's like, you remember in Jurassic Park when, when the velociraptor's testing the fences. You know, that guy goes, she's testing the fences, right? That's what Satan's doing here. He's coming to test the fences. He's coming to see where the weakness is. And he does four things here that I want to show you real quickly. First, he depersonalizes God. All throughout the creation account, you see that capital Lord. It's Lord with all caps. That's Yahweh. That's Jehovah. That's the word for Yahweh, for God. That's his personal name. That's his personal covenant name. And uh, Satan intentionally doesn't use it. He switches to Elohim because he would really like to talk about God in the abstract. Let's talk about God as a subject. Let's talk about God as a theoretical idea. Let's not talk about the God who actually formed you with his hands and blew his breath into you and comes and plays with you every day. Let's talk about a, a, a vague sense of God. And then look what else Satan does. He questions God's word. See that in verse 1? Did God actually say? How many of you guys have done that one? You know, did he really say? I know there's verses on this, but did, is that really his word, or is that really what it means? Or maybe I could find a book that would explain away this really clear verse that says something, you know? Did he actually say? And then God makes out, and then Satan makes out God to be stingy. Look at verse 1. He says, you sh did he say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see what he's doing? He's going, did God leave you here without food? You know, is, is, is God, he's so unreasonable, he's so stingy. And Satan wants us to think that. He wants us to think that God's commands are burdensome, that they're too much, that they're excessive, that they're, they're counter to human flourishing. And, um, and so he said, tries to make out God to be stingy. And then he minimizes the consequence of sin. Look at verse 4. He says, you will not surely die. Right? Does that sound familiar? Guys, he uses the same tactics on us every time. He's got a very standard playbook. It's so interesting when I'll meet up with a guy that's, you know, struggling with pornography, and we'll talk it through, and I'll say, what, what lies does your sin tell you that encourages you to do this? They're the exact same ones. There's only like six of them, okay? There's no variety. God uses the same playbook every single time. And I just want to tell you guys that what Satan's going to go after most in your life is your hold on God's goodness, he is going to make you question God's goodness. That is the main spot he's going to go. That's what he did here. And I would just say, make it your daily prayer and pursuit to believe more and more in the goodness of God. Like, that's, where, that's the weak part of your fence. That will always be the weak part, and that will be, always be where the, where the serpent gets in. And so Satan, he baits the hook with this distrust, and, and, he, and he puts it in front of him, and he, he jigs it a little bit. 
And, and they bite, and he reels them right in. Look at um, verse uh, th- 6 of Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate it. And she also gave it to her husband who was with her. And then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man saying, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said to him, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman that you gave to me, she gave me the tree, the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you've done? And she says, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And what we see here just immediately is the alienation and the curses that come from sin. You know, we have this place that was perfect, sinless place, and what we find is we find that there's alienation or separation in three ways. We got separated from God, we got separated from each other, and we got separated from creation. And so there's this alienation, there's this tension in those three ways. First, alienation from God, we see that in verse 7, that as soon as they sin, their eyes are open, and they see themselves as naked, and they start covering themselves, and then they, they hide from the Lord, which is super sad, because that would have been the best time of day. You guys, any of you guys have a hyper dog, and when you come home, that dog's crazy for you. You go in the backyard, it's jumping all over you. That's Adam and Eve, right? When God would show up, they would be so excited that God was there, and here they are hiding themselves. And then you see in Genesis 3.24 that they get driven out of Eden, right? They're driven out of the, this, this place of the felt presence of God, and they're, they're, they're sent out. And you remember what was put before there, so they couldn't come back. It was a, an angel with a flaming sword, as if to say, if you try to come back in here unmediated, you will die. Alienated from God. But we also see them alienated from each other. Look at verse 12. When Adam is confronted about his sin, and what was the consequence of the sin? Death, right? He's, so God comes to Adam and he says, you know, what have you done? And he says this in verse 12. And the man says, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. What's he saying? Kill her. Right? I mean, that's, for all he knows, he's going to die immediately. Now, death was something that was going to just start to happen at that moment. They were going to die from it, but not immediately. But his, his response is, kill her. The alienation between each other. Guys, can you imagine the conversation on the drive out of Eden, headed east, after this? <laughs> can you imagine the conversation? You probably had some like it. You know, Adam's like, good job, Eve. Good job. Great. Now we lost everything. Good job. And she's like, you were going to have me killed. You know, you can just imagine the tension that's there. And we see that tension in Genesis 3.16 where it says, he says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. That beautiful unity that was intended, that one flesh union that was intended for marriage now has tons of conflict and strife and being one is hard, it's difficult, it takes work. I know none of your marriages are like that, but other people out there have this kind of a situation and that's the alienation we have from each other. And then thirdly, there's an alienation from creation. Look at Genesis 3.17. He says, cursed is the ground to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and you will return to dust. So there's this alienation from creation. Work should have been not easy, but it would be something that wasn't burdensome. 
It was something that was enjoyable. We sometimes feel a little bit of that Eden-type work now when we have a, a, just a good day of work. We worked on something that went well. Most of the time, no. Most of the time, it's 11 trips to Home Depot, right? Most of the time, it's not easy, and that's because of the fall. And creation has turned against us, guys. You guys ever been camping? Part of the reason it's hard is creation is against you, right? The 18th century evangelist George Whitfield he said that dog, dogs bark at us and tigers want to eat us because they've taken up God's side in the quarrel. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? And so creation, alienated, work hard, followed by death. You work hard, then you die. And so these people, they were called by God to be stewards of creation. Instead, they've handed over the keys of this place to the enemy. The worst house sitters ever, right? And now Satan and evil and death run rampant in God's good creation. You guys remember the Greek story of Pandora's box? So Pandora's given this beautiful box as a wedding gift. She said, don't open it. And she opens it. All sorts of evil comes pouring forth. We have stories like that in our culture, don't we? We have movies like that. We have movies about how we've unleashed an evil we can't contain. Give me some. Where? You got one? I'll start. The Matrix. The Mummy. Frankenstein. Frankenstein's a great one. Old one. Yeah. All those killer virus movies. Grumblins. Right? (laughs) All those movies, guys, are showing, are showing the same idea that somehow humanity has let something out of the box that it can't contain, an evil it can't contain. And the reason why these stories resonate with us so much is because deep down inside we know that's exactly what we've done, right? We have let out an evil we can't shove back in the box. But the cool thing is here, even in Genesis 3, is that God doesn't just deal out curses, he also gives a covenant. He tells them that their banishment won't last forever. He will bring them back again. He makes a covenant with them. It's the covenant of grace. And so when he curses the serpent or Satan, he makes this promise. In Genesis 3.15, he says this to the serpent or Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what uh, theologians have called the proto-evangelium which proto means first, evangelium means good news. It's the first good news. This is the first good news in the Bible. And, and Yes, and it's the good news that God will one day send a child born of a woman who will rescue his bride from the disaster that we've created by crushing the head of the serpent. Um, Doug Wilson says that the whole theme of Scripture is found here. whole theme of Scripture being kill the dragon, get the girl. Right? It's this great epic story of how one day a redeemer is coming to kill the dragon and rescue his bride. And so God, and God does this beautiful thing too. Remember before they leave what he does? He covers them with animal skins, right? Covers them with animal skins to say, I will cover your sin. And it will be by the death of another and the goodness of another. And so that's creation, that's fall, and then redemption. Okay, now we're getting to Christmas. They wait a long time. Humanity waits a really long time for the seed of the woman to come. And you can imagine the first child that they have, they probably think, here he is. And that was quick. <laughs> you know, it's Abel. And then what happens? Abel gets killed. Think, is it Cain? Definitely not Cain. Is it Seth? It's not Seth. Like, no one actually does this, though they're looking for it. And I think they would have seen it in lots of people. They would have probably seen it in David. Maybe he's the one, you know, when he just kills Goliath and things like that. Like, maybe he's the one that's going to that's gonna end Satan's reign in this place. But none of them were. And then finally, around 5 BC, he comes, right? God the Son became a real man, born of a virgin, which helps with that enigmatic saying in there. It says seed of the woman, which is a really weird thing to say in the ancient world. There was a seed of the man, but there was no seed of the woman. And so this idea of it being a seed of a woman, what is that? You can imagine they were pondering that over over millennia, trying to figure out what that was. Well, here we see it as Jesus is born of a virgin. 
seed of a woman, not born with any help of a man, uh, no, no man's involvement. And at the moment Jesus enters the world, immediately the forces of evil want to take him out, right? They know the threat. There's human ones, political and religious. There's Herod and all of his sons. There's the, the Pharisees. There's the chief priests. There's Judas. There's Pilate. There's tons of human beings that want to take him out. Maybe they don't even know why, but, but they're being uh, influenced to try and take him out. The religious and the political powers both hated him. And then there were spiritual forces of evil. And they knew he meant business. Do you remember when Jesus came up to the demoniac? And he said, he said the, the demon said this to him, what have we to do with you, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Like, they know. They know something bad's coming for them. And then Satan tries to take him out. How does Satan try to take him out? Through the temptation, right? Takes him, uh, he goes out in the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days, and then Satan comes and tempts him. The temptation's important for at least two reasons. One is that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. When you trust in Christ, you receive Jesus' righteousness. And so the temptation's all to show Jesus is 100% righteous. He never sinned in his whole life. But the other thing he's doing in the temptation is he's succeeding where Adam failed to undo the failure of Adam in the garden. He's going to regain humanity's reign over the world so that the human king that's going to reign over this world is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? So he goes through the temptation, and you can read it later, but Satan uses all the same tactics in the playbook, tries to get Jesus to question his father's goodness. Jesus doesn't bite, right, at that lure at all. And then in Luke 4.13, it says that the devil left him until an opportune time. He goes, okay, well, this isn't the best time then. When was the best time? I would argue the best time was the Garden of Gethsemane. It would have been the next best time. As Jesus is looking forward to the cross and has real fear and trembling about it, and as he's praying in the garden saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And then he says what? Not my will but yours. He is the better Adam who has faced all the temptation victorious. And do you remember as Jesus got up from that resolved and he walks right into the trap, right? He knows the soldiers and Judas are coming. He knows these people are coming and he goes, come on, we got to go. It's time. You guys remember what happened in the Passion movie when he got up from his prayer? You guys remember? Awesome. He steps on a snake's head. I love that they put that in there. That's Genesis 3.15. That's Christus Victor. He squashes a snake's head and walks out. It wasn't in the Bible, but it's a beautiful thing in the movie. So on the cross, Jesus Christ defeated sin. It's defeated Satan, evil, and death. Hebrews 2.14 says this about Christ. Therefore, since the children, all of us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus defeats death through dying. It's amazing. Jesus defeats evil through the evil that was forced on him by human beings. It's amazing. It's Genesis 3.15 fulfilled. Christ bruising the head of Satan, though Satan bruised Christ's heel. And that, that needs a little unpacking too. I mean, Jesus was wounded in the process. The prophecy says he's going to crush Satan's head, but his heel's going to get crushed in the process. It's interesting. So it shows that whoever this Savior is, he's going to get harmed in the process. And Satan was able to kill his body, but Jesus didn't stay dead, right? Guys, the resurrection of Jesus turns the crucifixion into a heel wound, not a head wound, right? It looked like a head wound, but it turned out to just be a heel wound, a flesh wound, right? So Satan, guys, he's the one that got the head wound, and his head wound is fatal. Now, we have not seen him completely fall apart from the head wound yet, have we? Because we live in a time in between, and this is really what Advent's about. We live in the time in between D-Day and V-Day, if you're familiar with 
World War II. D-Day, Stormy Normandy, wars basically won at that point. But then how much longer did it take until V-Day when you got surrendered in Europe? About a year, almost a year later. And we live in that time. D-Day is the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus has had victory over Satan and over evil and over death. But we're waiting for V-Day, his return, when he makes all things new. And so we live in this time in between redemption and restoration. Advent looks back and it looks forward. We remember how Jesus is the prophesied son of Eve who crushed the head of the serpent. But then we look around and we go, Satan, evil, death, it's not yet been removed, right? So Satan has this deadly wound and guys, he is thrashing agonally and viciously. Um, I'm a veterinarian and sometimes when an animal goes to die, there's agonal thrashing. Okay, I work on horses, that's dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous to be in a stall when a horse is agonally thrashing in death. It is dangerous to be around this dragon, <laughs> Satan, when he is agonally thrashing. And that's what he's doing. It says in Revelation 12, 12, it says, Woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Isn't that awesome? Just like the demons. He knows his time is short. He knows he's lost. And, and Satan is like this suicide bomber. He knows that he's going to die. He knows that he's going to be judged. He knows he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Not to die like unconscious, but to be tormented forever. He knows he's going to go, and he wants to take as many people with him as he can. That's what this phase of his mission is about. It's a suicide bomber mission. I just want to say to you guys with complete seriousness that if you aren't a Christian today, you still belong in his kingdom. There's only two kingdoms. The way into Christ's kingdom is through trusting in Christ alone. The way into Satan's kingdom, you were just born into that. And if you have not come to Christ, you are still in his kingdom and you will go down with him. He will be successful in taking you with him. Guys, but there's good news. Check this out. Colossians 1, 12 says this, that through the cross, the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light and has delivered you from the domain of darkness. Listen to this, transferring you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You can get transferred. How cool is that? And you can get qualified. I like that. I mean, what a cool gospel word, qualified. That through Christ, you can be qualified to have the inheritance uh, that, that is coming for all of his people. And you can be transferred, and it's by trusting in Christ. All your treason, guys, if you will come to Christ, has been paid for. And he will cover you the way he covered Adam and Eve, but not with an animal skin, but with Christ's own righteousness. So that when God looks at you, he sees Christ's perfect righteousness, not yours. Isn't that awesome? And so our mission, guys, is to tell as many people as possible that good news. And Christus Victor makes this mission possible. And if you realize this, but like Satan has, in a way, been rendered weak by the cross. Um, if you take a look at Matthew 12, 28, I love this passage. So, Satan, uh, so, um, so some of the, uh, the critics of Jesus come and they say that he's casting out demons by Satan's power. And Jesus is like, that, you know that doesn't make sense, right? Like, <laughs> that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan? That has, makes no sense. And then he explains his power this way. He says in Matthew 12, 28, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And listen to this. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he can plunder his house. Strong man in here being Satan. He's saying that if, 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 that if Satan is bound in some way, then you can plunder his house. And that's why, that's why Jesus is saying, hey, how many exorcisms did you see before I came? I'm like, almost none. How many are you seeing now? A ton. It's because he's bound. 
Guys, we live in a time when Satan's house can be burglarized. Okay? We live in a time when God's people can rip Satan off. We live in a time when God's people can share the gospel with neighbors and with the nations and the Holy Spirit opens people's eyes to believe and they get rescued out of Satan's kingdom and his house gets plundered. Do you want to rob Satan's house? Seriously, guys. Seriously, there's an opportunity to rob him. Okay? And they're human souls. And their lives will be changed forever when they hear the gospel. And guys, it's happening. It's happening all over the world. It's happening huge in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, in the Middle East. And I was talking to people yesterday that it's happened to them in their lives this year. Do you want to rob Satan's house? That's what we're here to do. That's why we gather. One of the reasons we gather. And that's why we send people out. We live in the time between D-Day and V-Day. I love uh, Romans 16.20 says this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Did you guys already make your Christmas cards? That would be an awesome verse on your Christmas card, you know, to send to the believers that you know. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I just think that's a great Christmas verse. This is so Christmassy. So, okay, what, last one. So that's creation, fall, redemption. Last one, restoration. Do you want to see what V-Day looks like? Let me show you. Revelation 20, verse 9. In Revelation 20, verse 9, we see Satan and all the forces of evil. This is at the end here, before the, right before the judgment. And they're marching over the broad plain of the earth, and they surround the camp of the saints, the beloved city, speaking of the church. And fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And then it says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they are tormented day and night forever and ever. That's an awesome ending. Okay? That's an awesome ending, especially when you add up. I know it's the craziest thing. When Charles Manson died, you could just see on social media that the belief in hell skyrocketed. Like, nobody believed in hell, and then, you know, like, relatives I have that aren't Christians, they're like, he's burning in hell now. And I'm like, since when do you believe in hell? When we think about Satan, guys, we believe in hell, right? I mean, that's a time when you really think, wow, he is going to be thrown into a lake of fire, and it's going to be a joyous thing. Kill the dragon, get the girl, right? Jesus, the seed of the woman, will put all the evil back in its box. Satan, evil, and death. And then take a look at Revelation 21.1. Then I saw, this is him remaking the world. This world, the material world. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heavens and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So you see, not in the end, it's not about us going up to heaven, it's about heaven coming down came down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also, he said, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. Guys, he curing the curse and he removes all the alienation. The alienation between us and God. The alienation between us and each other. The alienation between us and creation. If you want to zoom in a little more, take a look at Revelation 22.1. It zooms in into the city. So you saw like the big view. Now zooming into the city, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the streets of the city. Also there were on either side, listen to the Eden here, the tree of life with its twelve fruits, yielding fruit each month. 
Then the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the, Lord, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And listen to this. They will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and the night will be no more, and there will be no more need of the, of the light of the sun or a lamp, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Praise the Lord. That's restoration. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. That's one of the things he did on the cross. And this new world that's coming, it's a garden city. Notice it's like Eden, but it's bigger, right? It's big enough to include everybody. And notice that there's a river flowing from it, just like Eden. There's generous provision of fruit and food, just like Eden. There's the trees of life so that death is removed. It's a symbol of death being removed and that we'll live forever in physical bodies, by the way, not wispy spiritual bodies, physical resurrected bodies. And notice that there's no temple because the whole thing's a temple, right? You get to live in the temple with God. It's a temple city. Guys, can you imagine having God closer than any friend and being able to look right into his eyes and see him, see him with your eyes, looking back at you, looking back at you with total delight in what he's made because of Christ. And guys, imagine being psychologically whole for the first time. Imagine what it's like to never fear, never hate, never hide. Imagine what it's like to love everybody perfectly. Imagine what it's like if there's no disease, no death, no suffering, only an endless world of wonders to cultivate for the glory of God. As what it's going to be like to walk along the river of the water of life and pluck some of the tree, fruit from those trees and go and visit with your Creator. In your body, with your own eyes, as Job said, beholding your creator. Behold, guys, he makes all things new. And I think this answers, guys, one of the most important objections, I think, against Christianity. One of the most important objections, the most powerful ones, is, the, is how can we believe in God with the current existence of evil? You've gotten this question before, and it's, it's a powerful one. If there is a good and all-powerful God, how can there be so much evil in the world, right? If he's both good and all-powerful, how can there be so much evil in the world? And, and before I answer that question, I want to ask, which God do you mean? <laughs> you know, because in that question, how can there be a good God? Which good God are we talking about? Are we talking about Yahweh? Are we talking about the God who is most uh, perfectly shown in Christ, Jesus? Are we talking about that God? Whatever the reason that God has for delaying, bringing the full restoration, one thing we can't say is that he doesn't care. <laughs> That's one thing we can't say is that he doesn't care because, guys, our God is the only one who has ever done anything to fix it. And it costs him, guys. It costs him pierced wrists, pierced feet, and a pierced side. Guys, when we talk about the problem of evil, we have the best possible God, a scarred one that's going to make all things new, right? And yet we wait. And even in Revelation, you have this sense of waiting. In Revelation 6, it says, The saints in heaven are crying out, How long, O Lord? Right? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, until you come? Advent, guys, is a series of wait, a season of waiting. And that's why part of the reason why the card has a black color to it is that it's a season of waiting. It's a season of yearning. It's a season of longing um, for Christ's second coming. Right? That's what we're longing for. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor, um, in Nazi Germany, he wrote a letter to his parents when he was in Tegel Prison. He was in Tegel Prison, and in two more years, he's going to be executed by the Nazis. And he wrote this to him during Christmas time. He said, from his prison cell, he wrote, Advent, The Advent season is a season of waiting, but our whole life is an Advent season. That is a season of waiting for the last Advent, the last coming. 
when the time when there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Isn't that awesome? It's a time of waiting. But guys, it's a time of waiting and hope and joy because we know how the story ends, don't we? We know how the story ends. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for all the things that you have accomplished by sending your son, Lord. And this was all your idea, Father. Your idea from eternity past was to, was to redeem us. We thank you for sending your son who came and was that perfect righteousness and was the one that could undo the horrible mistakes, the horrible sins, the horrible treason that we've done. Not just that Adam and Eve did, but that we've all followed suit. And so, Lord, as we come to the communion table, as we come to partake of the Lord's Supper, Lord, we pray that we would come with hearts confessing sin, repenting of sin, but also receiving full forgiveness, a feeling of full forgiveness. We know that we're forgiven in Christ, Lord, but we need to feel that. Some people have come with great burden, some weights of sin. And we pray as they confess it and take the supper, Lord, that you will help them to leave knowing that they are covered by your son's perfect righteousness. And we thank you, Lord, that we have a message for the world that is a message of great hope, the only real hope for the world. We pray, Lord, that you make us faithful to communicate it. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.